as I thought about and prayed about last fall what we would study this spring, uh, my mind like went backwards first about how how rough um, the last few years have been in the United States and and frankly in the world, right? With that little thing called the pandemic and just all kinds of things that have happened militarily with wars and economies that are struggling and crashing and just in general. It's just been a rough few years like in in the world. And in my mind, you know, just drifted to that book that we all know is uh, and maybe, maybe you've never heard this, but there's a letter in the New Testament that we call the Book of Joy. And it's, it's the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church at Philippi, which is in uh, modern-day Greece. And there's this improbability to it because the guy is writing from jail. You don't write happy letters from jail, right? You write like, I'm falsely convicted. These guys are mean. Pray that I get out, Right? I mean, nobody like wants to be there and then has fun while they're there unless the Holy Spirit is in you and he does a supernatural work in you, which he did in Paul and he does in prisoners now who are being used of God behind bars as well. And so you can't make sense of Philippians until you spend some time in Acts 16. Acts 16 is such a gift Acts in general is such a gift because it gives context to all the letters in the New Testament. You go, oh, this is what was happening here and there and why. And so I want to go back to Acts 16. If you want to get Philippians 1 ready, that's awesome. But if you also just want to like listen to what we're going to walk through in Acts 16, it's going to make the rest of the series come alive for you. And we're going to be here until May 12th in Philippians. And there'll be times when because of what we're going to do right now, and later, you'll go, oh, that's why Paul said that. Because this is what they were going through. And this is what the, the season was like for them. And you're going to discover there's nothing new under the sun. People are people and cultures are cultures. And the answer is always the same. It's in Christ. But there is specificity and uniqueness for them just as with us. So in Acts chapter 16... It says, and I'll give you a little visual just to kind of give backdrop for a moment. It says, you know, Paul is like trying to go somewhere. He's trying to move forward in mission. And it says that as they were passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas. And in a vision, Paul saw a man across the water in Macedonia, which is now Greece, as you'll see. And he's urging him and he's saying... Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called him to, to preach the gospel to them. So they set sail from Troas, made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis. So check out Neapolis up top. Um, it, you can't, because modern day Neapolis is Kavala. Do you see it at the top? So that's where he sailed, that's where he landed, and it says that once he gets there, he goes to Philippi, which you'll see on top of that. It's about 10 miles. And he does so on what's called the Via Ignatia, which is this road that you see. So here's the road it went from the shoreline there at what's now Kavala to Philippi and beyond, and you can see the modern-day road beside it. I show this for a reason. 
not for kicks or to entertain you and just have an extra slide for the morning. I show you this because I want you to, when you read the scripture and you hear about things like the Via Ignatia or an old town called Philippi, that when you see it, it builds credibility in your heart to the believability of God's word. Because there are a lot of faiths, cults, and traditions that speak of places and coins and people that have never been discovered. And it destroys, it's like a ripping out of the foundation to go, eh, did that really happen? But all through the scripture, from archeology span and other things, we see, and so when you hear Acts 16 now, it takes black and white and turns it into the color of your screen. Some of you have probably walked on this trail if you've been to Greece and, and visited Philippi. But it says they go there, and the scripture says it's a leading city of the district of Macedonia, Greece, and a Roman colony. So this was a military road that they built to move troops and equipment, just like President Eisenhower did during World War II here in the States. The reason we have 40 and 95 and all the others is because Eisenhower wanted us to have an interstate system that could move people and stuff fast. So it's no different. Nothing changes under the sun, all that. And it says that we remained in this city some days. Now, Paul took three trips, missionary trips, missionary journeys. And this is the second of those three. And it says in the scripture that this Philippi was a, it was a gateway between Asia and Europe, and it was named Philippi for a guy named Philip, Philip II, who was the daddy of Alexander the Great. And so you begin to fill in some blanks and go, okay, that's why it's called, just like Washington, D.C., there's a reason why it's named Washington, right? Philippi is named for Alexander the Great's dad, Philip. And it was colonized in about 42. And some interesting things happened in that time because that's when Mark Antony and Octavian defeated uh, Julius Caesar's assassins, Brutus and Cassius. And when they did that, they, they granted land to army veterans. And as a colony, these folks who came hundreds of miles away to settle in this colony, they, their soil under their feet and under their homes was as if they were living in Italy. So when we get later in the book, here's just one example. When we get later in the book and he says, you're citizens of heaven, first and foremost, he's speaking into a people and a culture that's like really proud of their citizenship of the Roman Empire. And see, that could play for us as well. We think about how great it is to be an American and all of that. But we have to remind ourselves, as Paul did them, we're citizens first of the kingdom of heaven. And so we'll see unfold all through this why this is so. Now, so let's, let's go back to Acts 16. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we, were, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who'd come together. So why do you go to the river? You know, Paul always goes to the synagogue first. Why do you go to the river? There was no synagogue. There, there, was, there was none there. To, to have a synagogue, you had to have 10 guys to form what they called a minion. M-I-N-Y-A-N, not minion like that. Um, you had to have a minion uh, to form a synagogue. So he goes to the river, and there's, there's a group of ladies hanging out, and, and they're praying. 
And there are three possible thoughts about where this was as this river wound through and meandered through Philippi. And this is one of the three. And you can see how cool it is to imagine uh, Paul there with these ladies and the baptism that we're going to read about in a moment. They've built that cool little amphitheater and, and all of that. So listen to what it says. It says, one of us, or one who had heard was a lady named Lydia. Now, just see them here. Just picture this group of ladies and this new guy that's just come off the boat down, you know, 10, 10 miles south, and he's come up to Philippi. Lydia was from Thyatira, and she was a seller of purple goods, and she was a worshiper of God. And the Lord had opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, in her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so as they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl. She was a demon-possessed slave girl whose owners made money off of her. And she followed and followed. And finally, Acts 16 says, Paul had had enough. And he says, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. To which they weren't pleased, right? Because they lost a source of income with her. So they stir up the town. Hey, these guys have come. They're they're telling us to do things that are contrary to what, what we do as Romans. And it says they stripped them down and they beat them with a stick. They, they just got whooped, literally, with a stick, badly. And then thrown, thrown into prison, into jail. And it says that while they're there, in the middle of the night, Paul's like, hey, Silas, you want to sing? <laughs> like, remember, they just got whooped, beaten with a stick, open flesh, they're in a prison, and he's like, I know a song, you want to sing? Like, who does that? Normal people don't do that. Normal people are like, hey man, does your back hurt as much as mine? Do you hate that guy outside in the hallway as much as me? Like, we need to get, we need to pray, we need to get out of here. And it says they're singing, and the, you know, it shakes, and the door's open, and the jailer's like, he needs to kill him. He's like, stop. He goes, it's all good, and the jailer comes to Christ, and Paul baptizes him and his whole family, and then he's like, hey, by the way, go tell, um, go tell the magistrates that we're Roman citizens, and they come, and they're like, oh, but we're so sorry. Would you just leave town? And they do. And fast forward about 10 years to Acts 28, and it says Paul's in prison again, but not like this one. He's, he's under house arrest in Rome. And while he's there, the Philippian church, they hear about it, and they decide to send him some money. And understand this, Philippians is not a rich church. They're not wealthy. It's a poor church. And so they send one of their guys, Epaphroditus, to take some money who gets really sick while he's there. And Paul writes a letter to them. And it's basically a thank you letter. It's Philippians is like a modern-day missionary thank you letter to the people in the church that supports him. And he sends it back, it's believed, to them with the same guy, Epaphroditus. And so when they get it, and they, they know who it's from, they know that he spent time in jail with them, but he'd been beaten, and he's in jail now, and he's at all, they've heard about his shipwrecks and his other floggings and beatings. They, he's not had a cushy life. And then they're like, <laughs> sorry to do this, but um, scroll, I think scroll here. Um, joy, 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 joy. Like, like Epaphroditus, are you sure this is from Paul? Because this doesn't make sense. 
And that's why we're calling the series Improbable Joy. Because it doesn't make sense to have this settledness inside of us. And when I say improbable joy, again, I don't mean happy, clappy happiness that fleets and is tied to good circumstances. I'm talking about something deeper within our soul that knows that even on the worst of days, I can be okay in a measure of joy in my heart because I know that this life is not all that I'm living for. So with that super fast, brief overview of the town and what's happening, this, why this letter is, let's look at chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus. And to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace, and, uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So just, you know, immediately, I just want you to understand, there's a shot, shot, there's a shot across the bow out of the gate. Because when he says to them, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, contextually, again, Philippi lived in what was called emperor worship. It was a cult. The Caesars weren't just like good dudes. They weren't just our leaders that will come and go. They were, they were divine. And so you had to burn incense. You had to worship. You had to pay all allegiance to them. And all of a sudden, you get this guy, this outsider, who's passed through town a couple of times, writing a letter to the hometown folks saying, Jesus is Lord. So out of the gate, he is challenging the status quo, and he's promising something so much better, so much richer. And he says to them in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. So he's telling them, this is how I pray for you. I, I pray with, with joy. And I often will send, when something brings my heart gladness, I will text back friends and family often, this made my face and my heart smile. And so when Paul's under house arrest, and yeah, it's not the prison he was in there, but it's still, you're under house arrest, under Roman authority, awaiting a, a little gathering of people who can do great harm to you. And so while he's there, while he's thinking about them, it makes him smile. But let's just put this in context for a moment. Because what happened there, remember, this was the first church planted in Europe. And it came about because of two people. Lady hanging out by the river and a jailer. And now they've got a church because there are elders and deacons there. So there's this thing that's foreign. Okay, that's good. That could make him smile. But remember, when he thinks about them, he has to think about getting whooped and beaten with a stick. Because you can't separate the two, right? He has to think about a demon-possessed girl that followed him around. How creepy that must have been. Being thrown into prison and then, you know, singing and then an earthquake. And then all this being unjustly accused. And then the magistrates finding out he's Roman and they kick him out of town and... All the 10 years of life, and then now he's in jail again. So it's, it's not just the happy times. There's a lot of baggage to it, but it still says that he thinks of them with joy. And when I read that this morning, I thought about, that's the way I feel about my last church that I pastored in Texas. 
that we were there nearly 20 years. And when I, when I think about Kingsland, I, I, I smile. I smile in my heart and my face because I, I loved it. And, and, but, but know this, I hated it when I got there. I hated it because I had gone as a pastor of a church that I had led from 90 to 30. And we shut up, shut down. And I left to go to not serve at that church, but to do manual labor in a job that I did for a year. And I hated it. And every day I went to work at this place for a year when I would turn off the main road in Katy into the side street. Do you know the name of the road? Carolina Avenue. I'm like, really? You know, I hate this place. And every day I come in, I'm reminded of the, you know, the land of James Taylor, right? I just, I just mi- missed it. But, but when, and, and there was other bad things that happened when I became a pastor there. A couple of pastoral failures that brought, brought such pain and damage to the church. And it was a lot of stuff. It wasn't just all good. And it was a ton of good. But when I think about the church... It makes my face and my heart smile, as does this church make my heart and my face smile. Paul chose, was exercising a spiritual discipline. He was choosing in his memory, not just to merely try to forget the bad things in your past, our past, but to see them as a part of the tapestry that God weaves in our lives, that he takes the the good and the bad, and weaves them together and makes something really beautiful, like a tapestry or a painting or a work of art or a music. And so he says, you know what, guys? When I think of you, it makes me smile. I pray for you, and I do it with joy. Because you know what? When I got over there, I was looking for the guy. I was looking for the guy, the guy in my vision. You know the guy in Macedonia? He never found him. How frustrating must that have been? There were a hundred things like that that he could have said. You know, I endured my time with you, and I'm glad you got to be blessed by my presence. He didn't do any of that. He said it was good, all of it, the good and the bad, and he tells them why. Verse 5, look at it. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. See, he didn't talk about like the good things and the bad. It was just, we were partners. We were partners in the gospel. And because of that, I can pray with joy. So joy's how he prayed. And their partnership is, is why he had that joy. And he says this in verse six. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So He's like, I joyfully think of you, and the, I'm just your partnership is why I'm going to do this in the first place. And that partnership we have gives me this confidence and this surety that God's going to finish in you what he started. And some of us think back to an old Steve Green song. Anybody, who remembers Steve Green? You're going to date yourself. Be proud. He who began a good work in you. Remember that? Remember that song? A lot of you hear that song and you think up and you go, <laughs> cool for him. Because you see the mess of your own life. You see that scripture and like, yeah, yay, yay for Bob and Sally, but I'm a mess, right? There's no like 
good work that's going to get completed in me because you know you better than anybody else. But that's a, that's, that's a terrible place to park. It's a terrible place to, to sit because we have to remember, we have to do what Paul's doing. Paul is playing the long game here. Paul's not looking at their life and his life as, as a finish point in time. Because I'll put it this way, when you came to Christ and that good work was started in you, if you know Christ, at that moment, Scripture calls that we were justified in him, right? And there's going to be a time when we leave this earth and go to Christ, or he returns first, and we're going to live in this thing called theologically glorification. So we're justified in him, and we'll be glorified one day in him, have a new body and all that. Well, the path in between the two is called sanctification. And sanctification is where he, he molds us and shapes us more and more into the likeness, the image of Christ. It's that sandpaper on the rough edges. He's creating a holiness in us. And let me ask you, if, if you were justified and you're going to be glorified and you're here in your life, um, do you look the same here as you did here? No. I hope not. Right, Because you've been growing through the hard and the good times in your sanctification and you're, you're moving. But the problem for us is we look at, even if we've gotten down the path and we're, we're better off and holier than we were here, we're still looking at an unfinished project. And if you look at an unfinished project and you don't know what the finished product is going to look like, if you were to come by my yard in the spring, coming... I'll probably have something new going on because I love just being in my yard. And if you're one of my neighbors and you, you might pass by, and let's say I'm building like a cool new flower bed out front right at the sidewalk in the driveway. And it's a two-day project, but you come by on day one. And you're like, nice dirt, neighbor. Because all I see is dirt and a little, some stones. And everything in me would be like, just give me time, man. I'm gonna just come back tomorrow. When you see flowers and some nice stone in there and flowers that are chosen by the color wheel that says purple and yellow looks good together. All of you East Carolina people say amen right there, right? <laughs> and you put them in the bed and you're like, come on, come on, neighbor, check it out now. Because then you can see the finished product and say, all right, that looks pretty good. That looks pretty good. Because when we see only halfway, in ourselves or in others, it's easy to get like discouraged or frustrated and to say, I don't really see this great work of art. But he says, notice, what's the last line say? At the day of Jesus Christ, at the return of Christ, when this is all over, I'm not talking about next week or a month from now, whenever he comes back or you step into eternity, there's gonna be a completion to your life that is the work of art that is his workmanship. And he says in verse seven, it's just right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So look back at verse five real quick. Verse five says, because of your partnership, and here it says, for you're partakers with me. It's the same word in the Greek, kind of. It's, it's where we get koinonia from. The first Verse five is koinonia, you know, like fellowship. And when we, we think of fellowship, it's like, you know, hanging out, like just hanging together or doing something together, playing golf or having a meal or whatever. 
The koinonia is so much richer than that. I mean, it's a part of it, friendship time. But he's, he's showing them his affections are so much different than, man, you guys had the best church fellowships ever. And that's all I remember is us hanging out together and eating together and, you know, doing stuff. And we would take those trips down to Kavala, they'll name it one day, and fish, you know. And he wasn't thinking about that stuff. He was thinking about something richer, this koinonia. In fact, this word in verse 7, partaker, is, it's an adjective, but it's got the prefix sun with S-U-N, which is like koinonia with. It's like another level of like fellowship that says, man, we're in this together. And so when you see it's right for me to feel this way about you because, you're like, oh, yeah. They didn't just like have some good times. They were partners in the gospel. There's this matriarch of the church named Lydia who is just chilling at the river, having a prayer meeting with the girls and trust Christ and is baptized right there. And the jailer who gives his life to Christ and he's the patriarch, I guess, of this original man in the church. You just go, verse eight, he says, so God's my witness. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. You're, I long for you. In my gut, I want to be with you. And so this is my prayer. He, he tells them, you know, how he prays. He prays with joy. And he, he tells them why because they're like, they're like super connected. And now he says, this is what I pray for you. Someday we're going to have a series on just Paul's prayers because there's so many and they're so good. And this is one of them. He says, this is my prayer that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That your love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And we'll, we'll just, let's just pause there for a moment. Why start there? I mean, what's the big deal? Paul gives us windows and clues because when he wrote the Corinthian church, remember he says, faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is, it's love. Jesus said it this way in John's gospel when he said that by this love, all men will know that you're my disciples and by the love you have for one another. So what he's, he's showing us, and Jesus did earlier of this, you know, this primacy of love, like love matters, but it's not like this sentimentality or an emotion or just one of countless songs about love. There, there's something rich about it. And he says, I want it to just bubble up out of you and abound more and more and more. And so if he's outrageously loved you, that love should really be moving out of you. If you understand how lavishly he's loved you, how greatly he's loved you, it can't be like, sweet, and then just bottle it up. We have to leak. <laughs> you know, if he's loved you, love others. So it begs a question to ponder. Are, those, are there those in your life who doubt the love of God for them or the love of God through you? Like, leave no doubts. You could die today, right? Every day is a gift. Every day is a treasure. And if we're pulled out of this life today, 
Would there be any question for those who love you that you love them with everything in your heart? That God, more importantly, that God loves them, love them through you. Because if, 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 if there is humanity around us, it should be soaked in the love of Christ. You know, hard dirt can't take seed. It won't go grass or flowers or trees or anything. It just seed hits and dies. But by the love of God flowing through us, it can take that hard dirt and soften it and soften it to where grass and flowers and things can root. And all of a sudden, a dirty field becomes this beautiful color. That's what's at stake. And what he's showing them and reminding us now is it's not sentimentality. It's not emotion. It's an act of the will that we choose. There's a story relayed from Tertullian, who was a church historian. The Roman Empire would send spies into churches to see what's going on. And I'd heard this last line, but I never heard the first two. And I thought it was, it was worth reading. One spy comes back and he says, these Christians are really strange people. They speak of one by the name of Jesus who is absent, but whom they seem to be expecting at any time. And how they love one another and how they love him. What an amazing testimony. If a guest could leave this place and say, they're a bit strange. Okay, maybe not, not that part. But they speak of one, Jesus, who seems absent, but they're expecting at any time. And my, how they love him and how they love each other. See, the vertical reality expressing in horizontal reality. They love him. They're loved by him. And they're leaky. <laughs> they're leaky. And his love is leaking and splashing onto one another and anybody that they come in contact with. That's the goodness. But here's where it gets interesting. He says, but with knowledge and all discernment. With knowledge and all discernment. Like, hmm? So let me just say this first. Knowledge is epinosis. Gnosis is that Greek word for knowledge. But he chose the word epinosis, which has this sense of an intimacy and a knowing, not like I know that it's sunny outside right now, but like I, I know my wife and my kids and my friends and, you know, people uh, because I've had interactions with them. Like we have, we have done life together. It's not like a knowledge of intellectual assent, but it's like a knowledge of I do life with you. Okay, that's the word he chose. Second is discernment, which just has a sense of like perceiving and an awareness of the truth. Okay. See those two things. Oh, this is perfect. May your love abound more and more. So there's a fountain. It's going to flow right here. And imagine that you're two banks, right? You're the bank of knowledge and you're the bank of discernment. Now, everybody has lived through or watched on television when the great Mississippi River overflows or some other river. That water that flows from, I forgot, where up north and empties into the Gulf of Mexico is awesome, right? Well, it's kind of skanky, but there's barges that move product north to south. There are people who fish and uh, whatever else they do in the Mississippi River. And it's great until it overflows. And these tiny towns along the Mississippi River cease to exist for a while. Because a river within bank is good. A river over the bank is destroying. A river in the bank is life-giving. A river over the bank is life-destroying. And so 
He's telling us in a culture that wants to redefine words like love that we need to have knowledge and discernment to keep that in its proper context. For example, in our current context, you might have seen a sign in someone's yard. Maybe this sign is in your yard. I don't know. But on the banner, it would say, love is love. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin wrote a nice little paperback called The Secular Creeds. And she made a case that there are six or seven new creeds in our culture. And one of those is love is love. That I can love whoever I want and love whatever I want. It can digress quickly into all kinds of crazy things, right? And when culture tries to define an ancient concept like love, we always get in trouble. The Greeks and the Romans did, and so do we. It's just not good. It's an overflowed bank. And all of a sudden, it doesn't make sense. And so when we, we have the love of Christ overflowing in us, the knowledge of God's word and who he is and discerning the current context and culture keeps us in a proper lane that says, yeah, this might not be popular right now for me to say, but it's ancient truth that's good then and is good now and will be good forever because his word is truth. And so he's saying, I want you to have a bunch of love and you're living around those crazy, you know, Romans that have all kinds of shrines and gods and goddesses and doing weird stuff down the street. But just understand this, love is defined by God the Father who said that it's in the sacrifice of Christ that you see true love. You see the giving of his son, that demonstrates what love truly is. It's not selfish, it's not consuming, it's not redefining to justify a sinful pattern that I wanna live in and walk down. It is saying, even though I don't agree with it and it makes me uncomfortable and it challenges me, I know because God is good, that his word is good, and I can trust him. I can trust him in that. And I believe him to be true every single time. So I pray that your love would abound and abound, but in these banks. A lot of you have heard my story about my flooding I've had at my house for 10 and a half years in a finally have seen victory in it in the last few months. And when it rained yesterday, I went up to my daughter's bedroom and I looked out the window and I saw a stream flowing from back there through my yard out to the street where the drainage thing is. And just like a nut in the window with no shirt on going, you know, like, yes, this is awesome. I love water that stays in the banks and goes to where it's supposed to go. And it's good because when it came over the bank, it wasn't good. It was harmful. It's cost me a lot of money through the years. And I'm, I'm over it. I'm over it. Okay? <laughs> the love that he's talking about is not sentimentality. It's not emotion. It is the solid truth of who God is. And he says in verse 10, there's a reason. So that you may approve what's excellent and be pure and blameless. Here it is again. For the day of Christ, for the day of Christ. And he says that when we have this knowledge and discernment, we have the ability to approve, to, to see what is right and what is wrong. It was a word used in classical Greek for metals and impurities. And this is good, this is not good. I mean, taken for and all that jazz. And he says, when you have truth and knowledge and discernment, perception, you can approve these things are excellent and praiseworthy and right and, and all of that. But he goes on to say, notice what verse 11 says. 
He says, so that you're filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glory. So, what? It sounds familiar. Fruit of righteousness. It sounds a bit like Galatians 5, right? Same author, same Holy Spirit writing, two different churches. The fruit of the Spirit, remember, was proof that God was within them, that the Holy Spirit in you, if you're a Christian, manifests himself as love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, right? There's like a testimony like, yeah, there's something inside of you. I see all those. And he's saying here in a different way that as the love of God abounds in you and overflows with this knowledge and discernment and flowing properly and approving of all those things that are right, there's a fruitfulness of your life that comes from righteousness. Again, not from you. Just in Galatians, it was through the Spirit. Why are we righteous? Because of Christ, right? We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So the fruit of righteousness in this case is demonstrated in these ways. And there's the same effect here as there was in Galatians. So that God would be glorified and praised. That's it. It's not that people go, that woman has so much joy. She is like not human. Wow, what a woman. Or that guy, I've never known anybody can love people like him. He loves the, the toughest dudes. No, that's not it. It might start there, but what it should end up in is saying, there's got to be something else going on here. There's got to be something going on. And in conversation, possibly, hopefully someday, they would realize that you're not the same person that you used to be when you were born again at like 6 or 16 or 40 you're like, this is, this is not me. This, this is not me. So what, what if we practiced, what if we practiced praying that text, like right now? Because I want to ask you this question. Who will you pray this uh, prayer for this week? You might pick one person and pray for all seven days. You could pick seven people and pray once a day for all seven. You could pick a group of people. You could pick a church. You could pick, a, you know, just who are you gonna, who are you gonna pray that for? You know, I love, love, love praying the scripture. It's because you're never out of bounds in this book. It's easy when we just start freewheeling at times to maybe, you know, get out of our lane or is that selfish or am I right here? Is this your will? When you pray God's word, you're always in the right lane. So let's, I just want to demonstrate. A lot of you have done this with me, but a lot of you, this is new. So let me just, let me just demonstrate. In fact, I'm going to use this as an example. The, uh, you know, we have a goal of planting, replanting 25 churches this decade. Um, this represents 12. This is number 12, I think. This is the Word of Life Arabic Church. They're meeting here. I mentioned them to you uh, a few weeks ago. It's a group of um, folks uh, of different backgrounds, but all Muslim backgrounds. And they had a gathering on um, New Year's Eve, and they had 135 people show up. Somebody from Texas came. <laughs> somebody from South Carolina, somebody uh, from Raleigh, and then I guess everybody else here. And the testimonies that came out of that night, that's the student center, uh, were like, this is amazing, I've never heard these things. Uh, wow, uh, could we have a group that meets in my house? It's just like, awesome. Word of Life Arabic Fellowship is recognizing that Isa in the Quran is Jesus, 
of the New Testament. And that he is not just a prophet, but he is actually Savior. That's so awesome. And so I just want to pray this text. I'm going to practice as if I'm going to pray for them this, this seven days. So bow, bow your head with me. Father, it is, it's, it's our prayer that your love would abound more and more with Word of Life Arabic Fellowship, that you would overwhelm them with how much you love them as a father and what you did for them in Jesus and that there would be a well within them that would overflow, but that it would overflow with knowledge and discernment from the word, from your Holy Spirit, that it would not just be the emotion of a moment or sentimentality of a season, Father, maybe, but... um, Yeah, Lord, just overwhelm them with a river of love and knowledge and discernment so that in the coming days, in these these new walks with Christ, that they could approve and understand what's excellent and that each of them would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ coming and that they would be filled, Father, fill each of them with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to your glory and praise. Amen. Do you see how easy that is? How fun that is? How awesome? You could pray that for so many different contexts. So make sure you get one of these. This is day one. Day one of our new journals are out there. If you didn't get one of these, it's simply the book of Philippians. And I really hope that you'll, you'll grab it and use it. Um, but in our prayer time, I want to I wanna ask, do you believe that for yourself? Sometimes we, we, supp- we suppress the lies that we've believed and we'll pray things for others that we want for ourselves because we don't think we're good enough or worthy. And truth is, we're never good enough. It's the whole point of the gospel. It's God in Christ who loves us on our best and our worst days. So would you bow with me for a moment? Father, we, we humble ourselves before you. And we kneel before you and I pray with my friends who are with me that you would stop them in their tracks and arrest their attention to understand this truth. That you desire for your love to abound in them more and more. And that they are a work of art. They are, as the Ephesians were told, your workmanship, that they are cherished and loved. And so, Father, we choose this day to receive that in knowledge and discernment, to to be able to approve what's excellent in a culture of ambiguity and fuzziness, and that your love would make each man and woman in this room, each kid in this room, each one watching, not sappy or emotionally high for a moment, but to make them strong in Christ Jesus. Sit in silence for a moment and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you.